You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. It was stunning. Very few times in your life do you get to actually hold a smoking gun. And we're holding those documents in our hand that says we are telling deliberate lies to the Supreme Court written by the government's own attorneys. It doesn't get any better than that as far as evidence. That's the voice of Dale Minami, a lawyer who helped expose one of the biggest lies ever told by the United States government. My name is Dale Manami. I work for the law firm of Manami Tamaki. Dale lived in Oakland for many years. While he was here, he co-founded the Asian Law Caucus, the first Asian American legal services group in the nation. But back to that smoking gun he was just talking about. World War II is supposed to be the good war, right? America versus the Nazis. Well, it gets more complicated when you know what our government did to nearly 120,000 Japanese Americans during that war, mostly American citizens. President Franklin Roosevelt said that the reason why all these people were being pulled out of their homes and shipped off to what he called concentration camps was to keep America safe. We were at war with Japan, and they said that the only way to avoid espionage or sabotage by disloyal Japanese Americans was to detain all of them. That smoking gun evidence Dale mentioned, it proved that this justification was a lie. The government knew that racist hysteria, not disloyalty, was the reason for locking up all those Americans, but they did it anyway, and they kept the real reason hidden for four decades. I interviewed Dale Manami around the same time that President Trump announced the so-called Muslim ban. I had one question that worried me more than any other. So you think something like that could happen again? I definitely believe it could happen again, and it's, you know, if you have the right Stars line up in the wrong ways. Yeah, you have a demagogic leader. You have a, a depression or a recession where there's a lot of poor people out of work. You have a marginalized group that can be blamed for the problems that you have. Or a quote-unquote like Pearl Harbor type. Or a Pearl or major catastrophe that you could blame on a, a specific group. You can mobilize or you can capitalize on that hysteria and then create that frenzy that brings you to a point where the courts will become silent, where people are afraid, and then you have another civil rights disaster. This episode is about the case of Fred Korematsu. Fred was an Oakland native. He's the first Asian American to have a state holiday named after him. And his Supreme Court case is the reason why Dale Manami ended up with that smoking gun. The incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II is one of the most shameful and unconstitutional things our government has ever done. If we don't want something like it, or worse, 
to happen again? Understanding the case of Korematsu versus the United States is crucial. I'm Liam O'Donoghue, and you're listening to East Bay Yesterday. In the final years of World War II, when the U.S. needed more soldiers, they released Japanese-American men from incarceration, if they were willing to go to Europe and fight on the front lines. When an army private named Shiro Kashino saw the Dachau concentration camp in Germany, he said, this looks like what they built for us in Idaho. Talking about what happened to Japanese-Americans during the 1940s, you'll often hear the words internment or internment camp. I started out our conversation by asking Dale Minami about this terminology. I actually prefer incarceration or prisons. You know, the concentration camp is an official term used by the government, but it, it does get a little confusing when you talk about the Jewish concentration camps, which are you know, massively worse. Internment, you know, I, it's, that's a good question because that's, that's an issue that is somewhat controversial, although most people side with the incarceration of prisons because the internment refers to foreigners. This is worth remembering. Most of the people who were incarcerated had been born and raised here, in California and other West Coast states. So how the hell did this happen? Okay, here's the short version. After Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, the U.S. declared war. First, Roosevelt declared all Japanese immigrants over the age of 14 enemies, and law enforcement agencies started rounding up community leaders. About two months later, the president signed Executive Order 9066, which gave the military power to imprison everybody of Japanese descent. And when I say everybody... I mean, they literally went to orphanages to find babies that looked Japanese, children that had been adopted by white parents, old people that could barely walk, get on the bus, or taken you away. Growing up, our parents really didn't talk about the, quote, camps very much, and they referred to them as camps when they were really prisons. So we didn't have a great understanding of the deprivations that they endured. They were first sent to Santa Anita Racetrack, and they had to live in horse stalls. So later on in life, I learned much more about how dismal the conditions were, uh, sleeping with manure on the walls, sleeping on hay floors. Pearl Harbor was the catalyst, but racism had been building for decades. The very first major anti-Japanese protest happened in San Francisco in 1900. The mayor, James Phelan, told the crowd, quote, Japanese are not the stuff of which American citizens are made. He said this was because Japanese immigrants refused to assimilate into American culture. This argument was total nonsense. White Americans were doing everything they could to keep Japanese communities culturally isolated. Assimilation was not an easy option. Anyway, the media quickly learned that hyped-up scare stories about the quote-unquote yellow peril was a good way to sell papers, and this spread anti-Japanese propaganda far and wide. In 1907, President Theodore Roosevelt 
banned most Japanese immigration. By World War II, Americans were used to seeing headlines in papers like the San Francisco Chronicle that said things like, quote, Japanese, a menace to American women, unquote. After Pearl Harbor, the military started feeding all kinds of completely made-up stories to America's biggest media outlets, and they just totally ran with it. Without any proof, papers from the New York Times on down ran warnings that Japanese-American farmers were preparing secret landing strips to help the invasion, that Japanese-American fishermen were colluding with enemy submarines off the coast, and you get the idea. And I'm really sorry if this ruins some of your childhood memories, but even the artist who would go on to become Dr. Zeus, yeah, the cat in the hat guy, he drew super racist anti-Japanese political cartoons. So all this helps explain what happened to Dale's family after they were forced to leave their home in Southern California. They were taken to Roar, Arkansas, or they were sent there by train, which is in the swampland of uh, southern Arkansas, and that's where they spent most of the time. My grandfather was one of the leaders of the community, so he was taken away early. They couldn't find him for a while. The family tried to petition to have him join the family, but they denied his, the petition, so he had to go to a special camp that was in New Mexico for Issei, or first-generation leaders. Most of these so-called camps operated for about three, three and a half years, and they were located in the most godforsaken places the military could find. The government knew that it was shady as hell to incarcerate thousands of American citizens without trials, so they tried to keep this hidden as much as possible by building these ramshackle prisons in deserts and swamps. Despite these crappy conditions, Japanese Americans were able to grow crops in these harsh landscapes. There are even stories of local farmers visiting the camps to study the prisoners' agricultural techniques. And another benefit that white American farmers got was slave, oops, I mean prison labor. Incarcerated people were pretty much forced to take jobs for low wages at farms and eventually factories. Sometimes they were even, um, let's say strongly urged to help out with the war effort by, like, sewing camouflage nets and things like that. Military reports say that most people were okay with this. They wanted a chance to prove their loyalty. They were Americans, and they wanted to do whatever they could to help America win the war. I know from my family and from the Japanese-American experience, they embraced American values early on. And if you're talking about Nisei, the second generation, they were essentially taught and trained to be, quote, American, unquote. So they joined and participated in all of the American activities, from baseball to social clubs. Japan was alien to them. They, many of them had never been back there. And so when they came here, they came to stay. And when they came to stay, they came to be Americans. They were like super patriots. Fred was the same way. I think Fred just embraced American values and culture, and that became part of who he was. 
Fred Korematsu was born in Oakland in 1919. His family owned a flower nursery, and even though his parents were both immigrants, Fred didn't speak much Japanese. He was brought up Christian. He liked to dance the jitterbug. He liked nature and camping in the Oakland Hills. Fred had to deal with racism occasionally, from barbers or restaurants who refused to serve him, but that didn't stop him from being a patriot. On the very first day of the war, he tried to join the military. They wouldn't take him because of his Japanese heritage. And by mid-1942, Fred was incarcerated at a racetrack a few miles south of San Francisco that had been converted into a temporary holding facility. Fred hated the experience of Tan Fran where they had to live in horse stalls. He even told the court, these horse stalls are for horses, they're not for human beings. That was terrible for him. After a few months there, Fred and thousands of other Japanese Americans from the Bay Area were shipped off to Topaz, Utah. They had no idea how long they'd be stuck there. It was still one of the most God-forbidden places you want to stay, you know, too hot, too cold, no privacy, humiliation, he being shunned by other Japanese Americans. The reason why Fred was shunned by other Japanese Americans is the same reason why there's a holiday named after him now, because Fred resisted incarceration. At a time when Japanese Americans were trying to prove that they were loyal citizens, most of them thought that Fred was making the whole community look bad. When almost every other Japanese American got on the prison buses, as ordered, Fred Korematsu refused. Or, as Dale put it, He just thought, I'm an American. Why should I have to go? Instead, Fred rented a room in the Fruitvale District got a job as a welder in Berkeley that paid him in cash, and pretty much just tried to lay low while him and his girlfriend figured out how to escape from the West Coast. Oh yeah, the girlfriend, who happened to be white, she's another reason why Fred ditched out. He was in love. The plan was to go to a state where interracial marriage was legal. It was banned in California at the time. But before they even got out of the East Bay, Fred was caught and thrown in the San Leandro jail. By the way, Fred said that the jail was much nicer than the racetrack prison. Better food, too. Anyway, Fred's girl broke up with him, and he eventually ended up in Topaz, Utah, which he described as, quote, nothing but sagebrush and scorpions. I'll get into Fred's legal case in a few minutes, but basically he remained incarcerated in Utah until the war started winding down and the military started letting Japanese Americans work in certain jobs in non-West Coast states. After Utah, he moved to Detroit, where he met his wife, Catherine. In 1950, they moved back to the East Bay and started a family. For decades, he didn't talk about his incarceration. His daughter, Karen, didn't even know about it until she read her dad's name in a high school textbook. Dale Minami isn't surprised by this. My parents didn't talk about the incarceration very much at all. And I think, uh, as with most Japanese Americans, they were totally ashamed by what happened and focused more on rebuilding their lives. I think they thought they must have done something wrong, and they felt that perhaps the authorities had some good reason. The end of incarceration didn't mean the end of racism, of course. 
Not only had Japanese Americans lost their homes and businesses, but now they had to rebuild in a country that was still suspicious or even violent towards them. Instead of seeking justice, though, most Japanese Americans tried to put it all behind them and assimilate so that they could never be accused of disloyalty again. The only glimpses we got were photo albums, bits of furniture that my father had constructed during his incarceration, and tidbits of stories, none of which reflected the hardships they went through. In high school, I read a one-paragraph description of the incarceration in the Korematsu Hirabayashi cases. That kind of gave me a little hint that something was wrong. Dale Minami went to high school in the early 60s, back when Japanese-American incarceration and Fred Korematsu's Supreme Court case had completely fallen off the radar. But before we get to how he ended up working with Fred, a little background. Dale started at Berkeley Law School in 1968, after escaping a Southern California campus culture that he considered, how do I put this? Racist, sexist, elitist. Yeah, what he said. Up here in the East Bay, he found what he was looking for. I remember my dad, who wanted me to go to USC because I had a full scholarship, telling me that, you know, there's communists, there's anarchists, there's free love up there. And I thought, that's perfect. So I came up here, and I, within a month, the Third World Strike had started in San Francisco State. I came up here in September. And Third World Strike uh, migrated to the Berkeley campus within a month, too. The Third World Strike was the birth of ethnic studies in academia. Before this, pretty much all classes were taught with a white or Eurocentric perspective, mostly by white professors. When Bay Area college students started demanding more diversity, the universities responded. Well, they responded pretty much like how you would expect institutions run by a bunch of powerful old white men to respond. Right away, we were uh, gassed. We were uh, besieged by helicopters and riots and everything crazy was going on. But it was a very teachable moment, so to speak, because the issues they were raising couldn't be controverted. You know, the notion that you should have a history that is knowable and that the history of this country was dominated by a non-minority narrative. A lot of people started looking at American history more critically for the first time. And I love this story because it shows that studying the past can spark action. The ethnic studies movement and classes were informing all of us of the past that we had not known about. So there was a great urge to, to do something, to move society forward. This was the start of a new era. I was in law school when I got recruited to be part of the Asian Pacific American Law Students Association. Because in my class, there were only five Asians at Bolt Hall. The next year, there were six Asians. And then affirmative action opened the doors, and 23 Asians came in. So there was enough critical mass to form an organization. 
Out of that student group grew the Asian Law Caucus, the first Asian American community legal services organization in the country. Dale was one of its founders. He says that the idea was... To use law as an affirmative, aggressive tool to fight for your rights. Their first office was across the street from Oakland High School. It was scrappy. We established a war chest of $586, and we used it to pay our first month's and last month's rent on Park Boulevard in Oakland. And uh, the rest, we bought a case of beer, I remember. And we used that while we built the furniture out of bricks and boards. So it was a very humble beginning. Fast forward about a decade to 1981, the phone rings, and Dale's life is about to change forever. I get a call out of the blue from Peter Irons. And he says, I'm a professor. I've discovered evidence that the Supreme Court was lied to in the Korematsu Hirabayashi Yasui cases. And my first response was, are those men still alive? Peter Irons, the guy who called Dale, he was a lawyer and a college professor. He was doing research for a book, looking through dusty old boxes of government records when he found something that wasn't supposed to exist. The original report, there were 10 copies of it. They were sent to be destroyed. They were actually burned. And uh, a certificate was issued saying that we've burned all copies of the DeWitt report. Well, they did all but one. The DeWitt report was named after John DeWitt, the army general who oversaw the West Coast during World War II. General DeWitt was very vocal in his hatred of Japanese people, and he was one of the main people pushing for mass incarceration. There was one pretty big problem with his argument, though. Not one Japanese American was charged or convicted, much less of espionage or sabotage. That's right. There wasn't any evidence to support imprisoning more than 100,000 Americans without a trial. This didn't bother General DeWitt, though. He still said, lock them all up. So the DeWitt report contained one paragraph in there that said the original report, we call it the first one he wrote, that's saying that essentially reviving the old inscrutability argument, that it doesn't matter if you have enough time, you can't tell the loyal from the disloyal from this race of people. Clearly a racist argument, clearly not palatable to the Supreme Court. The War Department required him to change that. They had a big, a raging argument. They said, you can't say that. And he insisted on it because he was essentially a racist. Uh, you know, a Jap is a Jap is one of his famous quotes. And they finally prevailed the War Department, and he changed it to 180 degrees different. The War Department knew that you couldn't just say, we're imprisoning all these Japanese Americans because we don't trust them. Because, you know, the Constitution... So they changed the reason to, sorry, we're at war and we don't have time to screen this whole community for secret agents, so we need to remove them from the West Coast as a matter of national security. After Fred Korematsu got arrested, a group of lawyers from the ACLU of Northern California took on his case. Just a quick side note, this caused the local ACLU to split from the national ACLU, 
The president of the main ACLU at the time was friends with President Roosevelt, and he didn't want to embarrass his buddy. Anyway, when Fred's challenge to the constitutionality of incarceration got to the Supreme Court, he lost. The court essentially said, if the military deems this necessary, we've got to trust them. The government's lawyers won by pointing to the DeWitt report, even though they knew it was a fraud. Finding the only surviving copy of the original report triggered a hunt that exposed a much broader cover-up. Another report by FBI J. Edgar Hoover, no friend of civil rights, said that, uh, you know, he recommended against the mass exclusion. That report never saw the light of day in the Supreme Court. Another report from a naval intelligence officer named K.D. Ringel also contradicted the military necessity argument. He had studied the Japanese-Americans before Pearl Harbor and eventually concluded in his report that they were not more disloyal than any other group, that they could be handled through individual hearings and not mass exclusion. That report was given to government lawyers, so they knew that even though they are arguing in the Supreme Court that Japanese-Americans as a group were dangerous, that their own report said that was not true. There were other bogus assertions in the DeWitt report that government lawyers covered up, but I think you get the point. The Supreme Court's decision was not unanimous, by the way. Fred lost 6-3. to three. Writing for the dissent, Justice Jackson wrote, The court has validated the principle of racial discrimination. The principle then lies around like a loaded weapon, ready for the hand of any authority. Those categories of evidence that were altered, suppressed, and destroyed, which misled the Supreme Court, became the cornerstone of our cases to reopen and overturn their convictions. The reason why Dale said their convictions is because Fred's wasn't the only case of resistance that went to the Supreme Court. There were a few others, but they weren't from the East Bay, so I'm not going to get into them. There's something else that made Fred unique, too. He was blue-collar. The other resistors were highly educated, professional types. Fred is a welder. So he was your everyday man, and he spoke in very simple, direct ways. And what he said pretty much came from the heart. And what came from the heart was the kind of courage to stand up and test the United States government. You know, Fred just thought it was wrong. The legal team that Dale assembled had worked together on another project related to Japanese-American incarceration. That's why the professor, Peter Irons, reached out to them in the first place. Most of the women and men on this team had parents or other relatives who had been incarcerated, so it was personal, too. But even though they had smoking gun evidence, it was still an uphill battle. There were a lot of legal hurdles. You know, how do you bring up evidence that's 40 years old? Who's still alive that could remember these things? Besides the challenge of reopening a 40-year-old case, the team also worried that the U.S. government wouldn't be fighting fair again. We had to prepare in secret. We didn't want any more documents disappeared by the government. So we wanted to prepare our whole case in advance. 
One other issue that raised the stakes even higher, there was already a major effort underway, pushing the government to pay reparations to Japanese Americans who had been incarcerated. Filing the Korematsu case at this time was a gamble. If they won, it would give the campaign's demands more legitimacy, but a loss would be a major setback. Our cases were brought in the middle of the redress movement, the journey of Japanese Americans and their allies of all colors to try to get $20,000 and an apology from the government for their wrongful incarceration. One of the hurdles in that whole movement was that opponents were arguing in Congress that didn't the original Supreme Court cases validate the exclusion and detention? And there was no answer to that, except that it was morally wrong. We needed to find a judicial declaration that undercut those arguments. So our cases were brought right in the middle of that battle. So it was very risky. You lose it and you're a pariah. Fred faced a backlash too. Some of his friends and family told him to let it go. I think they felt that, Fred, look, you lost once. You know, don't lose twice. That would be terrible. Fred did end up paying a steep price for his decision. Fred was working at the time as a draftsman, and he thought he should tell his boss because this was going to be a big public issue when we file. And his boss told him, according to Fred, you know, why don't you just let bygones be bygones? Forget it, Fred. That's in the past. Uh, But Fred couldn't let go, obviously. And so, you know, after we did file, he was told explicitly or impliedly, you're not really wanted here. And so he had to leave his job. I opened the argument by saying... We are here today to seek a measure of justice denied to Fred Korematsu and the Japanese-American people some 40 years ago. I still remember those words. And then Fred was able to say, I'm doing this so that it will never happen to another American again. The trial to overturn Fred's conviction was held in the Ninth Circuit Court in San Francisco. The judge was Marilyn Patel, who had previously been a municipal court judge in Oakland. Even before Fred's case, Dale thought she was a fair judge, but the outcome was even better and happened quicker than he expected. Judge Patel then ruled from the bench, which was a a big surprise because we had expected her to take in her submission, which most judges would do. Instead, she laid out a decision that there was no military justification for the incarceration of Japanese Americans, that evidence was altered, suppressed, and destroyed intentionally by the government, that racism was a role in the incarceration of Japanese Americans. And you could hear a pin drop, except for the slight sobbing of people who were crying. It was packed, right? It was, the courtroom was packed. Judge Patel had to move uh, the hearing to a ceremonial courtroom so it could accommodate more people. And there was people who had been incarcerated yeah. in the courtroom, And right? a large part of the audience consisted of people, Japanese-Americans, who were incarcerated. And so it was their day in court, finally, after all these years, not for just Fred, but for the Japanese-American people. And her decision just resounded in our hearts, in our souls, of something that we finally achieved a measure of justice. This victory invigorated the redress movement, 
which later did achieve its goal of winning reparations and an apology. Judge Patel's decision got Fred's conviction tossed out. But one thing it didn't do was wipe out a dangerous legal precedent, which still sits on the Supreme Court's books to this day. From a legal point of view, it did not overturn the Korematsu case, the original cases, because only the Supreme Court could do that. Even though Dale is a lawyer, he thinks that the key to stopping something like this from happening again will depend on people in the streets, just as much, or maybe even more, than legal arguments in court. In 1942, the Japanese Americans had no allies. Nobody stood up to support Japanese Americans. And in 1988, when Japanese Americans were granted redress, the Japanese Americans had a rainbow coalition of all Americans who helped support that redress movement. It had the political power to achieve a monumental victory. So I think the same lesson is here today, that if you're going to stop these types of civil rights disasters, you need to coalesce, you need to unite. Dale pointed to Trump's floundering Muslim ban as an example of this. The courts have played a big role in limiting the president's overreach, but massive crowds occupying airports, that sent a powerful message too. You can't get away with this. There's a famous quote that you've probably heard. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. But simply being aware of the mistakes of the past doesn't do much good either. Political expediency will overcome your knowledge of history. We're going to be doomed to repeat it because people don't care. And people will do it because they have other interests that are their priority at that moment. So even though if they know that, well, yeah, it's wrong to incarcerate Japanese Americans, but if I get elected by saying that we're going to register Muslims, well, yeah, well, screw history. I don't care. A few generations ago, Japanese Americans were the most despised ethnic group in America. Now, and I know this is a very problematic concept, but Japanese Americans are often referred to as a quote-unquote model minority. I asked Dale what he thought about this trajectory. If you're in the middle of doing something distracting right now, please take a break for about 30 seconds. Because his answer, well, you'll see. Japanese Americans were able to overcome a lot of the prejudices. They were able to become middle class or have you know decent incomes and education. Part of it was my experience. You know, we grew up to not want to be Japanese. We were pretty much stripped of our cultural heritage because our parents didn't want us to go to camps, uh, to prisons again. So it's a sad commentary in a way that you have to, uh, to assimilate. You've got to give up your cultural values. And the problem is that, of course, you lose something in that process. Uh, what you gain economically, what you gain in stature or status, yeah, that's good that you could survive but you've lost part of your soul. That's something that you, you almost can't get back. From the outside looking at us, yeah, you're doing great. But what about the 12 kids in Gardena where I grew up who committed suicide in one year because they were not meeting the assimilationist model? They were not achieving, which uh, Japanese Americans' parents pushed and pushed and pushed their kids to do. So there's a price to pay. And I don't believe we're out of the woods in terms of being considered equal. I mean, I've had instances of, of outright overt prejudice and discrimination happen in the last years 
you know, being hit on the streets saying, go back to China, you know, saying fucking chink. Those things happen to me. And if they happen to me, it happens to other folks. So it's not as easy as folks think that we're a model minority, that we have everything, that we have a great income. Thank you so much for listening to East Bay yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. For this episode, I want to thank the Fred Korematsu Institute. I barely scratched the surface of Fred's life and the history of Japanese-American incarceration. So if you want to learn more, there are a ton of great options. The book Enduring Conviction by Lorraine Benai is wonderful. And there's even a new children's book called Fred Korematsu Speaks Up. Densho.org is also a crucial resource. Another Oakland-based podcast, 99% Invisible, just did an episode about life inside Manzanar, one of the incarceration sites. It's definitely worth checking out. You can subscribe to this show, East Bay Yesterday, on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can also follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where I post photos related to each and every episode, as well as upcoming events and other cool local history news. There are links to all those social media pages at eastbayyesterday.com. And please, please, if you think today's episode was a story that deserves to be heard, the only way it's going to reach people is if you, the listener, tell people about it. Please spread the word. And if you give East Bay Yesterday a shout out on social media, please be sure to tag the show. And review it on iTunes too. That really helps. Music for this episode was provided by Anatech and Tab. Thanks for listening. See you next time.